You're listening to What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. Check out all our shows on podcast.hyperx.com. Content warning. Racism, Nazis, authoritarian regimes, and the inevitable futility of history. <sighs> Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. history was repeating itself, but I knew that it was human nature which lay at the root of history, and that no matter where I found myself, I was bound to discover superficial similarities, expressing and exemplifying that nature. It was human idealism, human impatience, and human despair which continued to produce these terrible wars. Human virtues and vices mixed with confusion in individuals created what we called history. Yet I could see no way in which the vicious circle of aspiration and desperation might ever be broken. We were all victims of our own imagination. This I had realized in my strange journeyings across what Miss Person called the multiverse. The very thing which makes us human, which produces the best, is also the thing which will make us behave worse than the maddest wild beast that could ever behave. The Steel Czar, 1981 by Michael Moorcock. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe. Uh, I'm your host, Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hello. And today we're discussing the uh, Michael Moorcock's uh, Nomad of the Time Streams trilogy, also called the Oswald Festival trilogy, which is um, a precursor to steampunk, though I'd say it's just steampunk. Yeah, me um, too. Uh, yeah, it's three books. Uh, the first one uh, put out in 1971 and the last one in uh, 1981. And, uh, uh, yeah, it, it very much exemplifies the ideas, um, the ideas that, that would come to, um, uh, that steampunk would come to be about, though, uh, mm -hmm. also a lot of, uh, anarchist politics. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's a fun bonus. Uh, we'll be right back after this. Introducing the new HyperX Cloud Stinger 2. The Stinger 2 is a refined evolution of the classic Cloud Stinger and keeps the fan favorite 90 degree rotating ear cups, comfortable memory foam cushions, and the swivel to mute microphone. It also features two years of DTS Headphone X activation for upgraded sound localization, all while keeping the great price of the original Stinger. That's right, get the new Cloud Stinger 2 for only 50 bucks. Now isn't that nice? Available online at Amazon, Best Buy, Walmart, and of course, HyperX.com. In a world with too many comic book podcasts and not enough deep dives into your favorite superheroes, 
podcast stands as a shining beacon in a world of pain and darkness. Yeah, yeah, darkness. Yeah, lots of darkness. Bunch of dark stuff. Superhero stuff you should know. That's us. Andrew, why are you talking like that? I'm the movie voice guy now. I'm the new movie voice guy, and it's time for you to listen to superhero stuff you should know. <laughs> uh, so we have, like, unused concept art, unmade scripts, unmade superhero movies, all check us out at superhero stuff you should know. Ben, you should do a movie voice guy voice. Guy voice. Uh, I would, but I think we're out of time. Superhero Stuff You Should Know, part of the HyperX Podcast Network. Part of the HyperX Podcast Network. I just said that. And we're back. Uh, so, Adam, you said you read the first one of these. Yeah, I read um, I read uh, The Warlord of the Air, which is the first one. Um, the, 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 that name is definitely a nod to uh, Jules Verne, right? Robur? Uh, oh yeah yeah um yeah he was the master of the world i I haven't actually read those books but yeah yeah but he had an airship right that's correct yeah yeah yeah, yes yeah um he was sort of uh i believe the the skybound version of nemo Mm -hmm. and i believe uh jules verne was annoyed at uh, um hg wells having an anti-gravity material right (laughs) that powered his his spaceship in his book right um, Make, it, yeah. it's not hard science because you didn't use the real thing that exists basically yeah yeah so um, shooting someone to the moon is a lot more plausible according to him <laughs> yeah um yeah so i believe roper's uh, ship is like um you know rotors and wings and stuff so yeah well he was right on that one we found <laughs> we flew via uh rotors and wings and not via anti-gravity elements but you know yeah Fair enough. Yeah, so this is uh, a trilogy of books set in different, uh, uh, each one set in a different reality um, that are um, variations on what uh, happened in the 20th century viewed through sort of old-fashioned fiction uh, and what uh, they were expecting, you know, the future to be like. So, yeah, again, it's it's, the first one's very um, Edwardian, or Victorian and Edwardian, uh, though it's set in 1973, it's a world which the English basically won, and it's been there's been peace ever since, but there's still like inequality and stuff. Yeah, um, it's yeah. The books Eric, are, books are kind of written uh, from the oppressed. He's sort of trying to write it as if it was being written in 1902, uh, and the person there was writing science fiction about what the year 1973 would be like. But he's doing it knowingly knowing what 1973 is like, or at least 1971, um, because he's retroactively sort of, you know, able to work in 20th century politics as they actually happened, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And there's lots of little nods to, you know, historical figures and stuff throughout this trilogy. And actually not just nods, like several major historical figures are important characters in this trilogy, um, though often in, in different forms than they they were in history as you know we would expect from an alternate history book um but it's it's not like taking the um uh seriously it's not the right word because it is like these aren't like comedies but uh the idea that this is how technology would actually progress is not um foremost for in moorcock's mind because like the Mm -hmm. the airship technology and um um 
yeah, it's it's like it's not realistic in that sense, and it's well. Not to I, I think there is a certain amount of thought. Again, I only read the first one, but there is a certain amount of thought into well, how would technology progress if given this and this and this? And in this case, uh, the world of the air presents a world, as you say, in which the basically in which the British Empire did not ever fall, and Britain continued to be the world power dominating for the next 70 years um and there were no world wars that's an important thing right, for the first one yeah and that so that ties back into some of the stuff uh we've we'll probably get into it in a bit but like um in terms of uh yeah imperialism there there's no war uh we we talked about it in terror in the skies which is our episode on angel of the revolution which i i think is going to be very relevant to this episode and i and i'm yeah, honestly yeah. more cox cited that cited griffith as a uh, direct griffin griffith yeah sorry griffin yeah um sorry with a th a griffith yeah yeah uh uh griffith as um uh, a major inspiration on the, on the settings for these. So, yeah, yeah, not not surprising at all because it's very much feels like uh you know a hundred years later follow up to Angel of the Revolution basically. Not only about no, that, airship. That Griffith actually did write that, but yes. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. But like it, it's it's a hundred. It's 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 him going. Hey, there's this book about socialists uh, conquering the world in airships. You know, so he's writing a book about airships and socialism and people trying to overthrow the not just socialism but you know i guess anarchism and quote nihilism which as we've said is a, a is a thing <laughs> that was the that was the term that was used um like it's it's clearly referencing that from you know a, a later perspective but as we said in that episode um like it, you know griffith was making predictions about you know where things would break down in the coming years including a predicting a giant conflict uh which is very prescient as to world war one in some ways even though he got all, all the details wrong but he was kind of wrong in a way that showed he was paying attention so he, mm -hmm. he thought that you know england would side with germany for instance uh but um you see that like you can definitely make the case that um like the uh, the treaties that held europe together right up until world war one um could have potentially you can see how logically those could have continued uh and that there would be peace as you know, as is emphasized in the book, in Europe, not in the rest of the world. Like he says, oh, it's been 100 years of, or 70 years of peace. But it's not really peace because they're still attacking and constantly there's constant turmoil in the territories. It's just that the peace never comes home to Europe. It never comes home to England, right? Yeah, and also massive, massive inequality, even more so than in the real world at the time. Right. It's it's the idea of... um you know, uh, I've created a bubble in which everything is, it's utopia because I live in the place that gets the, the benefits of it all, which is, of course, is the, the standard thing that anyone who's socialist or anarchist or anti-capitalist would try to break through your head. Like, yeah, things seem good because you're, you're, you're the beneficiary of all this. So you don't see, and so, so it's like, there's no war. It's like, well, is there war in India? Like he literally describes wars happening or at least conflict. Um, it's just, they're not categorized as war. I was literally just listening to a podcast about the Battle of Blair Mountain. Uh, like, that was a battle by any real conflict, but nobody marks it as a battle or, or a war because it was between, you know, a union and the bosses of a coal mining company. Um, so, like, you don't, you're not, we're not trained to think of that in terms of a, a war or a battle or even a real conflict other than just, like, an uprising, some kind of, you know, hoodlums. And that's what, that's how, that's clearly how people think in this book. Like, if if the Indians or the or the Chinese rise up and try to fight back against their colonialist masters, they're, it's just a, 
it's a minor scuffle or maybe it's major but it's not a it's not a real quote war it's just you know turmoil in the territories kind of thing because it doesn't come home right Mm -hmm. and um that is actually the interesting so yeah that's the interesting thing about this so it it portrays a lead character who's oswald bastable you do you want to talk about this phil um, yeah, uh, the name is taken from uh, uh, a character from E. Nisbet, uh, Nesbitt, who was, uh, wrote children's stories in the uh, Victorian era and early um, Edwardian era. Yeah. Um, Edith uh, Nesbitt. She and yeah. her husband. Sorry? Yeah, Edith, Nesbitt. Edith, Edith Nesbitt was actually her name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, her and her husband uh, were uh, um, members of the. Um, uh, oh, sorry. Fabian Society, yeah. Uh, yeah, the Fabian Society, which was like a, a incrementalist. They, they were socialists, but they thought, uh, you know, we can reform the system and gradually turn it socialist. Yeah, they um, were like de- dem socks, basically, in a yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. So, um, in so, uh, and the name is taken from a one of her uh, children's books, a character from that. Though Moorcock has said it's not meant to be that character. Just using the name is just sort of to evoke um, uh, uh, Nesbitt and her philosophy yeah. um, as the um, uh, main character sort of being faced with uh, harsher realities. Yeah, that that's really interesting because um, he says, oh, it's not supposed to be the same character from the book, uh, The Story of the Treasure Seekers. But in all, in all respects that I can tell, it is kind of, he is kind of the same character, including he even mentions having the same number of siblings, uh, and and I almost want to think that since so much of the book is about alternate reality versions of characters, maybe he's an alternate reality version of Oswald Bastable from <laughs> the story of the Treasure Seekers. You know? Oh yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Although he'd have to be, I think he'd have to be a little older because I think they're children in those, and they were only that w- they were only set a few years before this. So unless he yeah, was a really uh, young well, guy, yeah. There, there's lots of uh, time issues with some of the cameos. I think uh, Al Capone shows up in one of them when he would have been like. 10 but he shows up as an adult you know oh okay but it's multiverse stuff so you know right right (laughs) well i mean yeah when lennon shows up it was stretching it a little bit although they did say he was talking he was very very old but anyway go ahead yeah yeah (laughs) oh yeah yeah we'll we'll get into that stalin is the villain of the third book yeah i i (laughs) I knew that yeah (laughs) yeah uh though that one's set in 41 so it's Mm -hmm. not that it's not ridiculous but yeah no um uh, he was, yeah, because of course he was alive in '41. World War Two yeah. was still happening. Um, but as you say, yeah, it was. A, it was. She was uh, uh, trying to. She was writing from sort of a an enlightened liberal, but still like basically in, in favor of British imperial. Well, maybe not even in favor of quote imperialism per se, but I, I think she would have been shocked if you'd said tear down the whole system. She would have said, well, no, let's reform the system into something good. Um, and that's that's definitely where the main character is coming from, Oswald. He's he he believes in you know he's he's a nice guy. We see him working with the Indians early on uh, and the Gurkhas, and he treats them with dignity and he's a like he's decent to them. But they're still subjects of the British Empire, and he's still representing the the arm of the British Empire. I think that's what that's what we're going for here, like a good guy who's nevertheless in, doesn't see how the system he works for has yeah, problems. Yeah, he's, he's got he's got biases and. <laughs> And very, you know, powerful blind spots. Um, also, uh, a running thing in this trilogy, he will switch sides on a dime. Uh, it just keeps happening. Does um, it? I don't. Does it though? I'm not sure that's true. 
In the uh, first book, it's not it's not so uh, oh, okay. but it keeps happening. Oh, all right. I got you. I got you. He keeps going back and forth on various sides and, you know, just joining the complete opposite side that he was on. Uh, mm. uh, often because he joins he joins the other side and finds, oh, these people are worse. Uh, right. I'll go back to the other side. Uh, I see. Yeah, I think, well, I, I think that gets to what um, Moorcock was probably trying to do with these uh, to a certain extent, because I think he... Um, I, I think he wanted to sort of show the journey of, you know, people changing their minds about their, their preconceptions and in from a leftist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist kind of view. Um, because, like, he does change, like, by the end of the first book, he's very sympathetic to the, uh, I mean, at, there's a group, he falls in with a group who are effectively, well, okay, let's let's go back and, and uh, tell the actual uh basic story here he's a he's a guy who works for the british uh armies in uh in india in 1903 um and then he stumbles across an ancient temple that basically hurls him forward in time but not to recognizably our time it's instead it's to a a future in which as we said the british empire has maintained its hold on the world on europe and the world and um and there's airship technology which is the big thing um, <clears throat> there's one or two other things they they have radios and and film and and uh well they they don't have television um mm-hmm. the, the film is like uh what was it kinescope uh the the yeah. stuff they used in the uh, difference engine yeah kinema he calls which is yeah. like they have film obviously but yeah they don't yeah. seem to have well I, I, well that's the thing when when he shows up at at at, at dawn city at the end um they have like picture transmission which i guess you would consider to be television um like it's in in this case it's more of a star trek view screen thing but that's you know the basic but he, technology he sees for television. it as really amazing technology that right. he hasn't seen before yeah exactly and of and heavier than air flight is is seen as amazing uh when it shows up at the end of this story um and, and there's a line early, uh which uh the, the the titular warlord of the air says which is that you know uh the authoritarian tyranny uh, they, they, which is what he considers the British Empire to be. They, uh, they reject uh, uh, what is new and the advance of technology and curiosity and exploration of science, and that's why uh, we're able to get a leg up on them by building all these uh, uh, these new devices. We've got all these scientists who weren't allowed to work under the under the tyranny tyranny of the uh, of the of the British Empire. Uh, so, but, I mean, there's a fairly strong case for that in this book that you know technology didn't improve as much as it did in our world in this world because of the st- relative stability and lack of war which that does make sense i would say mm-hmm. so um, um yeah go ahead um yeah so uh he um once he he arrives in the future he um um he pretends that he's has uh, amnesia um because uh, everybody will think he's crazy if he says, I came here from 1903. So he, uh, he pretends that he has amnesia, and that, that gives him an excuse to ask questions about how the world works and stuff. That's actually pretty good thinking, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, he does initially say, yo, I was just there in 1903. What happened? And everyone just everyone just assumes he's kind of conked to the head. So he just kind of goes along with the idea that he was an amnesia who was developing psychological <laughs> beliefs that he was actually from, you know, the 1903, just, yeah, as you say. Yeah, so he gets a job as uh, basically a security man on um, uh, commercial um, airship flights. Um, 
which, uh, as we've said, are like a common thing. So they have military airships and also just, um, they're basically big cruise liners. Um, it's not like traveling on a plane because it takes longer and, and they're a lot bigger. So, um, yeah, it really uh, has the feeling of like a, a cruise ship where there's an orchestra section, you know, a dance floor and stuff. Um, and um, so he's having a good time of it there, uh, making sort of adjusting to uh, the present. And uh, Ronald Reagan ruins everything. Mm hmm. Well, uh, unlike in I, this in this world, Ronald, ruin, Ronald Reagan ruins everything. Not like our <laughs> world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, Ronnie Reagan, a uh, a scout leader, and uh, in this a uh, really racist uh, Karen type guy mm -hmm. uh, who just constantly complains to the staff, and you know he's when there's um, uh, some mild turbulence, he gets really freaked out and. Um, starts waving his gun around you know he doesn't want to be disarmed on the plane because he's american damn it mm -hmm. and uh, he doesn't like that they're playing um uh jungle music in the in the dance hall um and you know they he doesn't want to eat next to you know uh, n-words because he you know he was set set next to um people from india uh you know um right and this was again written in 1971 um this was when Ronald Reagan was still just a governor. Right. Uh, but you see like he was known obviously, but like Yeah, and he uh, was he I feel was like Moorcock really got his number early on. Well, it was because of some of the things that Reagan did as governor that people were able to call him out. And 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 he did run for president in uh 1976 as well. So he was like he was a he was definitely a major figure in the Republican Party, so he wasn't someone you could easily ignore, uh, in, even in 1971. Uh, yeah, he's known for uh, uh, some of the policies have been, he's been accused of really cracking down on the Black Panthers in California, for instance. Um, yeah, so and, I think um, that's where that's uh, coming from. I yeah, mean, uh, really um, going hard for gun control because Black people were arming themselves. Exactly, yeah. It was, uh, it, you know, I think that's 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 not how we would even people who dislike Reagan these days would probably not characterize him as this virulent racist. But in 1971, people were a little oh, closer to some of stuff. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm not 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 arguing that way. But that's not usually held up as sort of a his big uh, his big sin these days. He's he did you could argue it got even worse in some ways. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's um... yeah. There's uh, um, audio, leaked audio from the Nixon tapes of him uh, talking about uh, ambassadors from, uh, I believe, an African country. And he was saying, he called them monkeys and saying they're they're from countries that just learned how to wear shoes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, he launched his presidential campaign at the place where, uh, and on the anniversary of the murder of a, of a bunch of civil rights activists. Yeah. Um, like he he's he was signaling who he was uh, but he he mastered the whole dog whistle thing yeah on that cheerful note let's hear from some of our sponsors we'll be right back on what mad universe we're here to announce a special deal for all of our what mad universe listeners if you've had your eye on any of the pink variants on HyperX gear, you can save 15% off during the month of October by using code HXPN over at HyperX.com. Get yourself an elegant white and pink Cloud 2 or a metallic pink Alloy Origin 60 or any of the other pink peripherals on the site. Once again, head over to HyperX.com and get 15% off all pink gaming products with code, all caps, HXPN. 
SequelCast2 and Friends looks at movies and video games and franchises one movie and game at a time. Hosted by Matt Bradley Shurgi, Thrasher, and Alex Miller, been going since 2009, and we're part of the HyperX Podcast Network. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, um, but yeah, so his his clash with Reagan, who is in this case a, a, a leader of a, they're called the Rough Riders, actually, and Reagan actually says he was one of the original Rough Riders, although he would have to have been, like, long after their actual historical importance uh but apparently the there's a cub scout uh, there's a scout like organization named after them anyway he yeah he's just so obnoxious that he clashes with uh, oswald and uh it leads to a confrontation and oswald gets fired and he he can't get hired um uh, on any other airship line or anything so he's completely destitute at this point and he gets um uh hired by some a, a smaller less reputable ship uh headed by um uh captain oh i forgot to look up a pronunciation for this uh Korzeny- Korzeny- i think is, is who is joseph conrad that's the real name of joseph conrad mm, okay i didn't realize that the writer but, yeah, yeah yeah he wrote a Another, heart, heart of yeah. darkness yeah there's a lot of uh historical cameos that are disguised by using the, the people's real names Mm-hmm. As opposed to the names that they're better known by. Right, right. Um, like Lenin, as you mentioned. They, yeah. they never call him Lenin because right. that wasn't his, his original name. Right. It's Vladimir Ulyanov. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Stalin is uh, never called Stalin in the third book. He's um, uh, uh, Joseph Ju- Jugashvili. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I did write down a pronunciation, but I still couldn't read it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's very hard. It's a, it would be he's from he was from Georgia, the the country, obviously not the, yeah. the state. And uh, so it's they had that's yeah a difficult name for someone from uh, North America to pronounce. But uh, yes, yeah. Um, um, yeah, and, and um, we learned that uh, um, I'll just call him Conrad is. Uh, um, um, has been working with some anarchists and you know um uh uh festival is is flabbergasted by this and he's you know um tries to he's making plans to like turn them in and stuff but uh um uh what happens next sorry it, it well, has been a few weeks for me yeah it's it's it is uh yeah bastable like and again this is it's very much in the head of a guy who's like oh my god i'd fall in with anarchists who are they're all monstrous criminals. Like, and you can see it's again, like a good guy who's been fed a diet of propaganda basically. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Basically uh, he, he realizes that one of the people on board is uh, an anarchist terrorist uh, named Ca- uh, Count de Beck, I think it is. Um, and uh, he's a, and his uh, companion is Una person. Von Beck. Von Beck. Von Beck I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, Rudolf Von Beck. Uh, he's a, um, and uh, yeah, when he recognizes them, he sort of he tries to to confront them, and actually with a gun, and he gets uh, von Beck actually uh, uh, manages to to disarm him, and they keep him prisoner. Uh, but then the the ship is actually taken over, uh, or well, not taken over immediately, but they bring other people on board, and Bastable only gets a bit of a glimpse at this because he's a prisoner for most of it. But they take on board um, the the titular uh, warlord of the air, uh, O.T. Shaw, A.K.A. A.K.A. Shuo Hoti, uh, who's half uh, British and half Chinese, and um, he's he turns out to be a, a very 
you know, powerful and charismatic uh, communist leader. He actually calls himself a communist. Um, and uh, he actually, there's a, there's a, a disagreement over what they're to do next because they were headed to, um, I believe it was Brunei, uh, to lead a revolution. And he's basically told, Shaw has told them, no, you're actually, they're, they're, you're walking into a trap. You have to change, uh, change positions. Uh, his, or you have to change to another direction. His men actually take over the ship and commandeer it and put them in, in chains along, well, not in chains, but in, in the hold alongside Bastable. And they fly with them back to, uh, his city, his, uh, city in the hills which is a you know he, where he's called a warlord but he's actually building a, a communist utopia in the in the cities which is funny because it's very um it's very gulch gulch except it's exactly the opposite ideologically yeah. <laughs> uh the idea that because of all the people who have been shunned by the british empire for having nationalist or uh anti-imperialist sen- sympathies they uh he manages to snatch them up and he's got all these great brilliant scientists working away uh creating you know it, for them advanced technology for for a uh, you know for a world where the technology kind of slowed down after the turn of the century they're suddenly leaping forward with heavier than air flight as we said and television or video broadcasts and uh eventually as we learn uh, a nuclear bomb they are actually building um which is meant to sort of sort of punctuate the uh the negative side of all this, the idea that, you know, it's, it's, they're portrayed more and more sympathetically and Bastable kind of goes over to them, uh, ideologically. He doesn't even, it, it happens a little fast, as you say, uh, but I think it's, it's a short book and I think, uh, Moorcock yeah, just likes it, to it, have, it works better in the first one. It just, it keeps yeah. happening yeah. in the sequel. So yeah, it gets a little, uh, repetitive, but at least that aspect, like this so is, the, the books are different in a lot of other ways. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is Moorcock's politics. He's an anarchist, and he you can yeah. see how he he like you're meant to be sympathetic right from the start. Like you're meant to see. It's pretty clear that when yeah. you're reading it, the Bastable is like, oh, he's a good guy, but he's been deceived essentially, and he's going to come around, mm-hmm. and he does. He sees the you know he sees the horrors of imperialism. Uh, but then you know we see what happens when this guy takes charge, and as good as some of the stuff he's accomplished have been, uh, he's willing to unleash a nuclear bomb on his. Um, his uh on on the forces of britain to prevent them from uh from uh, attacking uh his his city i mean they were definitely the aggressors uh but he also didn't really realize how bad the nuclear explosion was going to be it's actually what finishes off the first book uh it's implies that they all die and and it was dropped on hiroshima which is a british dockyard in this yeah that's a little bit on the nose the fact that it turns out to be hiroshima that that where the british because that's where the japanese uh, airfields are which all the great powers team up to try to destroy shuohoti because they realize he's a threat to them uh but with britain leading the way but they're based in hiroshima which is of course (laughs) where they dropped the bomb so yeah uh, as i read off in the the first bit it it points out the the superficial similarities that keep repeating because of how he's traveling through the multiverse. Right. Um, and like the bomb is, a, is a, the bomb going off in this book is like, it comes back um, in a big way in the other books as like a source of his own personal shame and stuff. Right. Well, I, I mean, uh, let's not forget, this is the middle of the cold war when he's writing this and we're only a decade off from uh, the, the, the Cuban missile crisis. And, uh, you know, and of course, even China being uh, communist was a fairly recent development when Moorcock wrote this. It was in 1949. Um, so, I mean, like this is very much you, you can. It, it's funny how we started to maybe forget a little how big an impact the threat of 
mutually assured destruction and the Cold War was for most of the 20th century. <laughs> and and like it, it now we look back at it and we kind of downplay it in our minds because we don't see that. Although, although given recent historical events, who knows? But um, like we're now like that. That's just that's that's always seen as the exclamation point on the end of maybe technological progress isn't a great thing. Maybe that's a problem. Um, and that's clearly what Moorcock's intending with this. Like, you know, with all the good intentions in the world, you can see how, you know, he's, he's being an anarchist. It means he's sympathetic to the communists, but he also thinks that they take it into, you know, authoritarianism and, you know, some, some bad places, which end with a nuclear bomb in this case. Um, yeah. And the bomb is what sends him, um, Back to 1903, but not his 1903. He says right. there's some slight differences from what he remembers, and he's trying to get back to his own version. Yeah, uh, and that's where uh, there's a framing story of him meeting up with uh, with an uh, ancestor of Michael Moorcock, who's right. also named Michael Moorcock. Yeah, um, very Victorian style framing story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what makes me feel like it's so much a nod to Victorian science fiction, not just in the obvious way, but in the sense that he's trying to write a Victorian sci-fi style novel, right? So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so um, we'll, we'll go over the the other two books uh, quickly because they they cover a lot of the same ground, but there's some interesting um, uh, different settings. Um, each one is set in a uh, radically different version of uh, the 20th century. Um, so, it, you know, he travels through uh, to uh, uh, three different multiverses or mul three different universes in the multiverse over the course of the series. Though he, um, the third book implies that he's been traveling for a long time through various universes. So, um, and it's possibly like hundreds of years old, if mm -hmm. not older. But by the second one, it's his... Uh, the second book, it's his second time uh, in a in a new universe, and um, this one is a uh, post um, a post World War uh, uh, world that's been completely ravaged by um, uh, man made diseases and and uh, other uh, you know biological warfare, and basically it's a post apocalyptic setting. Though there are still airships, it's mostly submarines in this one, um, and. Uh, uh, the the main conflict here is a um, um, General Cicero Hood of the New Ashanti Empire, um, a uh, American uh, freed slave um, or former slave. Um, uh, I forgot to mention this is set uh, in um, around 1904. Uh, the sequel. Oh, like even in even in the new timeline he jumps to, it's still 1904. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's present, but there the changes happen in the Victorian era, basically. I see. So there was a world war in the Victorian era in this. In this yeah, era. yeah, and um, basically most of the world's uninhab uninhabitable, um, uh, and Africa's sort of rising up. And um, uh, General Cicero Hood is um, the uh, leader of the New Ashanti Empire. He was born in America um, as a. Um, so basically, he's. Uh, declared revenge on on um, uh, white people for everything they've done, you know, rightfully so. Um, particularly uh, uh, America, which uh, um, he wants to uh, take back as sort of a personal vindication thing. Um, and America, as shown here, is um, has gotten worse than it was in real life, even even during this period. Um, the Americans have decided that the that the 
main problem uh, with what happened is they were too nice to their slaves. Um, and uh, yeah, so they're they're getting even worse, and they, they've uh, developed uh, superstitions around the, the disease, the diseases that they're they're carried by black people, and um, so they they wear uh, white hoods on their head as sort of like a, to ward off the disease, you know, uh -huh. like clan hoods. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah so uh, uh, Cicero Hood has a uh, reputation as as um, uh, a war bloodthirsty warmonger. Um, uh, uh, so this is sort of the, the setting of the world. Um, and of course, uh, uh, Baspo initially is very much against him, um, but uh, he falls in with uh, with Joseph Conrad. So he comes again, back so as an alternate just... version of himself in that in that next one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of repeating characters, including uh, Miss Person, yeah. who's. Um, uh, in the first book, I should actually mention Una Person um, and, uh, actually predates this trilogy as well. Uh, she's a character who's yeah, yeah. She's a she's a character right. from Cox that he used. Yeah, to, she's uh, in uh, the Jerry Cornelius stories. I think that's her first appearance, uh, and she's literally. Like when when Moorcock started to develop this idea of the Eternal Champion, which we talked about in the Elric episode, uh, but he 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 was also dealing with this idea of the the multiverse and everything. Uh, Una Person almost pre like not doesn't predate because he'd been doing the Eternal Champion before that, but um, she was a uh, she's kind of the stand-in for uh, Elric's sword in the Jerry because Jerry Cornelius is basically a retelling of the Elric stories, but in a '60s sort of sci-fi uh, spy. Uh, novel like a James Bond type novel um, and instead of a sword he has this beautiful woman who follows him around and seems to be literally sucking people's actually absorbing people's bodies it's kind of strange <laughs> but she's okay no that doesn't come up but she means, I think she the does, uh, she does travel through the multiverse seemingly but, yeah she's uh, got she's she's a I'm mysterious like, woman with strange powers essentially that keeps popping up in his books so yeah Oh yeah, um, he he um, ends up uh, uh, joining with the government of uh, uh, Bantustan, which is um, what was once uh, South Africa, which has been um, taken over by President Mohandas Gandhi, oh. uh, who is the uh, yeah president of South Africa. I believe he right. did actually spend yes. some time in South Africa. Is that is that true? Um, yeah. So. Uh, Gandhi's pretty much the same as he is in real life. You know, he's all about nonviolence and stuff. Uh, he has a military, but he doesn't arm them. But, uh, you know, everybody else doesn't know that. Hmm. Um, um, but uh, there, there's a, 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 a official visit from um, uh, Cicero, General Cicero Hood of, um, of the uh, New Ashanti Empire. And uh, Bastful is uh, sort of assigned to um, uh, work with Hood. Um, in or at least uh, uh, be like an official uh, uh, envoy um, during his uh, and ends up being involved in his invasion of America. Bastable, uh doesn't you know want this to happen, um, and so he switches sides and works with the Americans for a bit. But he sees that they're like the worst people, uh, like just absolute scum uh their their plan to uh um uh yeah cicero hood has uh the land leviathan which is the the title of the second book uh which is just this like massive kaiju tank mm. basically that can go in any direction and you know can't be knocked down and stuff 
um, uh, and uh, um, there, the uh, Americans' plans uh, for for stopping um, this thing is uh, uh, putting up a wall that's just a bunch of cages with uh, slaves in it as like a barrier to stop the progress of this thing, um, uh, which mm. isn't good. Um, so yeah, basketball switches back, uh, switches sides again. I mean, he Cicero okay. wins basically. Yeah. Um, basketball uh, helps him out and c- comes around to to the understanding that uh, uh, this version of America is <laughs> good. Yeah. Just <laughs> so this is yeah, this is more about uh, dealing like the first one was the British imperialism. This one's dealing more with, I guess, American imperialism, even though it sounds like it's mostly set. Yeah, Africa. yeah. Or, or American internal right. politics uh, uh, to do with with race and stuff. And um, of course, um, uh, I the uh, new Ashanti Empire has some interesting um, uh, things in the description. Um, Cicero Hood um, in um, encourages um native african styles of say architecture and and art and stuff so there's a very sort of afro-futurist um aesthetic to a lot of the descriptions including um skyscrapers that are shaped like um uh, vaguely like uh african huts so like with a, a conical roof and a cylindrical body to it um and this is like before afrofuturism was like a huge thing it was um i mean obviously before black mm-hmm. panther and stuff but uh uh, it was a thing at this point. I was looking up. Uh, uh, Sun Ra was uh, um, a musician who sort of helped pioneer Afrofuturism as an aesthetic, and uh, he was uh, around mm. at this time. Um, so I don't know if uh, Moorcock knew about him specifically. I, I think, but uh, you're obviously drawing on different. Yeah, I think it was a general. I don't think it was just Sun Ra. I think it was a general a concept around the time, uh, the late '60s and '70s. There was a real uh, attempt to sort of. Yeah, create Afrofuturism as a you know an alternate alternate uh, alternative to American and British imperialism. Like obviously, exactly the kind of things he's playing around with this uh, within this story. So I guess it's kind of like saying, well, if just as a you know uh, uh, a communist rebellion against the British Empire uh, could end up going bad because of power, so then you could get a uh, Af- uh, you know, a, an Afrofuturist rebellion or an Afrocentric rebellion against uh, American imperialism, and it could also go bad because of power, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the the third book, which I, I remember a bit better. Uh, the second book, I thought it had some interesting parts, uh, particularly with Hood, but um, it is a little bit repetitive uh, with the with the first one. Uh, like I said, he switches sides a bunch. Um, uh, happens less than the third one. Uh, third one introduces some uh, um, he the idea that he's been traveling like I said for possibly hundreds of years he has no idea because he doesn't seem to be aging at the same rate but he's been we get the idea that he's just been through through this for a very long time and he's getting used to um, adjusting himself to new universes and stuff uh, he's landed in 1941 in a world where uh, there was a uh, a communist revolution, uh, but uh, uh, Stalin wasn't involved in it, and they still sort of kept the czar around as like a figurehead thing. Um, so it's very toned down to what the, the USSR actually was. Um, uh, Stalin is uh, 
here is the the main villain of this book. Um, here under his real name, which is uh, Jugash. Yeah, Jugashvili. Ju- Thank you. Put the wrong emphasis well. on everything there. Um, he's referred to as the Steel Czar in this. He's basically Doctor <laughs> Doom. He wears a metal mask covering his face <laughs> at all time, at all okay. times. Because, yeah, uh, in this, it's because he's embarrassed about his uh, his pox scars, which is something he actually had, I believe. Though they weren't that bad, so possibly they were worse than this universe, and he doesn't want to show his face. Um, he's he's essentially a supervillain in this. Like he has a, a inventor build him a giant robot version of himself to march into the, ba- the battlefield when he's not there. Um, and he's like full on cartoonish supervillain throughout. Um, uh, I mean, with good reason, but you can tell Michael Moorcock did not like Stalin. <laughs> really? That's strange. Who, who wouldn't love Stalin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's, well, um, or is it that yeah, he, uh, he wanted to make him into an awesome supervillain who was cool and. No, no, he's a pretty. He's not as good. He's not as cool as Doctor Doom, but he has a lot of Doctor Doom traits. Um, he's not as competent as Doctor Doom, basically. Um, and uh, so uh, Machno is actually leading the Cossacks uh, out of um, in this version. In this version uh, of reality, he was uh, a priest at one Who point. St- Stalin was. was? The, yeah. Uh, yes, that was real. Yeah, leaving real life, he. Yeah, in real life, he he did st- he did he was in the seminary for a while, which is very strange. But yes, it's yeah. true. Yeah, in this he was uh, he's actually mm-hmm. a former priest, so apparently he. he it's important to remember that, uh, like at that time, uh, like the Russian Orthodox Church was hugely tied in with the Tsar and the and the and the uh, not the feudal but the monarchical system of Russia. I, I mean, it was feudal up until very quite recently, uh, but it was. Uh, it, it basically, uh, the from my understanding, the, the czarism was like the last yeah. feudalism. Uh, like it was the the remained basically the same as it was in the medieval period. It was like the the last um, lengthy gap. Yeah, the for, the formal feudalism formally was ended in Russia in I think 1880 something. Um, so they di- so like it was within living memory of the Bolshevik Revolution. They had had literally the system of feudalism now it was obviously gone by the time of the bolshevik revolution but it was um it was still like yeah it had a very heavy-handed autocratic monarchy which other western european countries didn't have that as much like they were still liberal democracies even though they were you know they still had monarchs and everything like that so uh, but yeah Um, the the czar was like an absolute autocrat right um, uh, exactly in russia yeah um and that was um I mean, that's why the the czar is the the big villain of um, the uh, angel of the angel revolution. Of the revolution like it, represents like monarchy in its purest state, basically. Right, and and it's not just that, but like throughout, especially the nineteenth century, whenever other monarchs would get into trouble, like this happened during the French Revolution and the rise of Napoleon. Uh, and of course, it wasn't bad to fight Napoleon necessarily, but just whenever there was something that threatened uh, the monarchy in any country, Russia was always the first country to send a bunch of troops. There's a whole thing about, uh, there were a bunch of uprisings throughout Europe in 1848, for instance, which a lot of people don't always know about. Uh, but the Russians were just sending their army hither and thither to just crush all, put down all these revolutions. Uh, it, like anything, and of course, they were all 
related to each other, the European monarchs, right? But it was considered to be like the Russians were kind of the backwards uh, fight or die for your czar kind of thing. They were seen as the the ones who wouldn't make waves and wouldn't question anything. There was heavy censorship, but and and the monarch and the clergy was part of that. Like so, it was like you were you were really ground in. And I mean, some people would say even to this day in Russia, like you look at the the head of the Russian Orthodox Church is like gung-ho for Putin right now like it's that their role has been to reinforce people's belief in the leadership of Russia during that time um so it's possible that you know you want to say Stalin got like the sort of authoritarian impulse ground into him in the clergy maybe I don't know that's you know not to not to cycle speculate psychologically but you know it it was definitely that certainly uh there was something messed up about this guy uh beyond it wasn't just a where he where he ended up in life it you know he fought to be there anyway so carry yeah. on yeah yeah uh so um uh and stalin here uh the the steel czar is um um working with uh uh nestor makno who is a real person who's mm-hmm. an anarchist warlord of um uh ukraine uh during um the uh the russian revolution and ended up uh um, fighting both the um, uh, czarist, uh, there were you know holdouts of the czarist system, the white army uh, and the red army. So he was fighting both sides uh, right. to keep a um, uh, a free uh, Ukraine, um, which uh, uh, and apparently he was he was actually very um, a a good leader. Uh, he was he like stuck to his principles and. Um, uh, he allowed a free press, uh, even uh, those critical of him. Um, he fought, he stamped down on um, um, anti-Semitism uh, in his uh, own ranks and stuff. So, what is his role uh, in this story exactly? So, uh, in this, he's um, in an une- uneasy uh, partnership with the Steel Czar. Uh, he runs the uh, the Black Fleet, a ship, uh, a fleet of airships, and he's uh, again here a brilliant tactician, though in a in a different uh, medium in the air instead of the ground. Um, and he manages to uh, take uh, Basketball's ship uh, um, and get Basketball involved in, in this. Uh, but of course, um, uh, Stalin, you know, betrays him and they fight each other. And um, uh, yeah, it, and uh, it, it ends with uh, uh, nuclear stuff happening again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Stalin has uh, uh, developed a, or had developed a um, uh, nuclear bomb, and he's going to drop it. And uh, basically, the the heroes are trying to stop it. And uh, this is where we get uh, some non, uh, yeah, basically Miss Miss Person comes back, along with Von Beck. Uh, though this is a different version of Von Beck, and uh, this version is an albino, and he uh, says oh. he's going to do away with. Um, uh, titles, and he just wants to be referred to as Monsieur Zenith. Uh, and of or, course, this is him and even a person again, so he's Elric again as well, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and he's a sorcerer. Yeah, he can control time uh, in a limited, fa- in a limited fashion, like he can pause, you know, okay. pause time and stuff. That escalated um, quickly. Yeah, yeah, it's like how uh, the sequel to uh, uh, Angel of the Revolution has them just having Vril and communication with Martians. Hmm. <laughs> Just like, okay, this is another genre now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, I guess it would be uh, Zenith the Albino, if you want to say it in British ways, which makes the character sound a lot less cool. Um, 
Should we go into a bit of him? Because I guess we covered him in the Elric episode. We did, but just, yeah, you can say just briefly. Uh, we don't want to go on too much yeah, longer either. But, he's uh, a, yeah. uh, a super villain character created uh, for uh, as an emphasis to Sexton Blake, who was uh, early on a Sherlock Holmes ripoff, though he eventually turned into his own thing. We'll probably do an episode on him at some point when we can track down enough of uh, his stories, because there's a lot of them. Um, but uh, Zenith was one of the big sort of breakout characters from this. He's a um, um, super genius criminal, uh, an albino, um, uh, very uh, sophisticated. Uh, he's addicted to opium. And uh, uh, Michael Moorcock loved this character and, uh, of course, based uh, his own character, Elric, directly on him um, to the point where he, they're canonically uh, alternate reality versions of each other. Yeah, yeah, that's like that, both expressions of the Eternal Champion, which yeah. is Morcock's thing. That that definitely seems like this one came out. This book came out in it was like the eighties by the time this one was published, right? Eighty one was the last book. Yeah. yeah, and I think at that point, you know, we'd gotten heavily into the nerd culture, you know, Marvel stuff, and and I think Morcock was really being celebrated for bringing in the idea of both the, the Eternal Champion and the multiverse ideas. So it feels like he probably leaned heavily into them in that one in a way he maybe hadn't as much in his earlier books, uh, even though they were there, of course um so that that would be what i'd guess um anyway so yeah what what happens with, with so him? uh stalin wants to drop the bomb on uh, machno's uh army um but uh, ultimately they're able to stop him and it's uh turned against his own forces instead um and then uh um fastball you know gets sucked into the multiverse again mm. uh so he's that's uh, how it he, ends the, the final book yeah it, with the implication that he's going to be joining the uh uh, um, uh, Miss Pearson and uh, Von Beck's uh, League of Temporal Adventurers, which is sort of like, yeah, basically this ends with Nick Fury recruiting him into <laughs> the Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, so it must have continued in something else Moorcock wrote, and I think I... Uh, no, I think this was the end, but it's just sort of with the implication that more stuff will happen to the characters, even if we're not going to see it. Right. Well, I, th I, but no, but I think um, that kind of thing, like, given that, for instance, Una Person shows up, um, I think that maybe they've got like a footnote in one of his other books. I know he started writing about another character. I don't named... think Bestable appears again. Oh, okay. I, I haven't come across him appearing again. No, maybe not Bast, wrong, but... maybe not Bastable, but 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 the things like the League of. Uh temporal gentleman or whatever whatever you said it was called <laughs> adventurers um, yeah. yeah adventurers yeah uh i think i know for instance then he started this series about a guy called colonel Pyatt, uh which has some of the same elements i think to it um anyway it, I, I and then he's got all these fantasy books and i i have a strong feeling that they get referenced again somewhere in his books not necessarily bastable himself but the but the league might get uh, brought up again yeah. yeah that makes sense um so yeah, I, I would I would recommend these books. Uh, like I said, it, it they're very short, so uh, even though there are repetitive elements, it like you can get through them quickly, and uh, they, each one does have its own sort of fun ideas and and um, 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 philosophies it's playing with, and yeah. um, sci-fi sci ideas, and there, there's lots of uh, I mentioned there's uh, cameos from historical figures all over the place. Um, some of them that don't actually really make sense historically, but again, there's the multiverse thing to mm -hmm. um, sort of hand wave that away. Yes. 
so yeah, I I would recommend these books. Uh, yeah. Like I said, there's there's uh, good ideas in them, and uh, uh, yeah, I read I, I like. I read the first one, but I'm gonna. I'm actually just gonna go and keep reading the second because I liked it enough. I liked it so much, so I'm gonna keep yeah. reading the second and third books as well. Yeah. Um. And uh, yeah. Uh, I sort of wish he continued with these. Actually, um, like you could do. I mean, it's it's a multiverse, so you could do an infinite mm-hmm. amount of. But I guess he said all he needed to say with. Uh, right. Um. And well, I, again, I again, like the it. multiverse and this kind of recurring figure thing is a thing in in Mor- all of Moorcock's work it keeps happening uh throughout yeah. his book so it's not it's not um I, I i would say he continued he just didn't continue with this particular character and this particular theme Fair. it just became in other it, it, it amplified in different ways basically yeah i like the airships though yes yeah. who doesn't like airships um, <laughs> um and uh we, we haven't really discussed uh, steampunk as a concept but i i stand by this is steampunk it just oh came yeah before the term was named yeah I mean, it, it's wild to me that people don't look at this and say it's the first steampunk novel because it's uh well again i mean you never know what the first is of anything and when does like actual retro sci-fi become steampunk and everything but um yeah it's just the fact that the term steampunk came later but in all other reasonable respects it's a steampunk novel like there's just no way around it like it, that's exactly yeah. what it is and in fa- and the fact that the steel czar came out in the 80s around the same time that that actual term steampunk started to be kicked around might have uh you know might have uh, except it wasn't called steampunk but i mean I, most people acknowledge this to be steampunk i think it's just that the, the quote first steampunk novel is usually credited to something else that- well we've apparently destroyed another timeline thanks to man's hubris and folly so we'll say goodbye again for now we've been philip rice radical potidist rightist humanist and Adam Prosser, radical nihilist industrial dadaist, uh, locked in deadly combat with each other until we get around to overthrowing the forces of oppression. Uh, our producer and engineer, Alex Ross, keeps the voice of Radio Free Dawn City transmitting. And the theme song was by Jack Pyrrhic, who was the biggest rock star in the world in an alternate reality. Just a reminder, uh, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, uh, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice with one L or Adam Prosser with two S's or NeverSleepsNetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, no alternate versions of that uh, you can also follow us on twitter at wmu podcast or prankster 36 for me or spear Hafok a for philip and also check out heroeslive.tv which is the site where i'm the comics editor we're adding new stuff all the time uh there's some cool comics there so subscribe to check it out oh uh and i i would also like to plug the apex society the web comic i do uh i just finished an issue that i've been working a long time on so Hopefully people like it. <laughs> yes. It took great. me so it I will never do a story about cars, eight-legged horses and complicated Norse designs all in the same story ever again. <laughs> but it looks really uh, cool. Yes. Thank you. Uh, so until next time, keep the basketball flying.